Well, I said I wouldn't sing this morning because I didn't have a very good voice. But how can you not sing such things? Turn with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Uh, you can see from the, uh, uh, from the sheet that uh, we're going to be thinking about the presence of God. It says part one. Well, uh, we're going to go on further, uh, but others are going to be preaching for the next few weeks. So we'll, uh, we'll wait for that for a while. I'd love you to read forwards, really, in Exodus 33 and 34. Perhaps you'll do that over the next few weeks and just ponder on it, just think about it. Because I think that everything that uh, is in these two chapters, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, all revolve around, are all connected to two words, two words. From God's part, from God's perspective, Exodus 33, verse 14, my presence, my presence. From Moses' part, from the part of the people of God, verse 15, your presence. It's the same thing, isn't it? God says, my presence. Uh, Moses says, your presence. The subject of our thinking and our meditation and the challenge of this passage really is the presence of God, the presence of the Lord God. And uh, Roger Ellsworth, who's written a very helpful book on the life of Moses, I just put that quotation down there. You can see it on your sheet. Nothing is more wonderful than the presence of God. And nothing more tragic and sad than the absence of God. We could almost stop there, couldn't we, really? Just think about that. That's a sermon in itself, isn't it? If you're not a Christian this morning, then what characterizes you is the absence of God. See, right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, after that perfect world that God had made when man fell, we, we read that Adam and Eve hid, hid from the presence of God in chapter 3 and verse 24 of Genesis, we read that God drove them out of his presence. And by chapter 4 and verse 16, the die is set. Cain went out from the presence of God. And men and women, boys and girls, each one of us as we're born, we're born into a world where what characterizes us is not the presence of God with us, but the absence of God from us. You might have fun in the world. You might have money in the world. You might have a great time in the world. But if you haven't got God in the world, you've got no hope. No hope. Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2 and verse 13, he speaks about people uh, who are without God, without God, and without hope in the world. But there's a wonderful thing that can happen to you. It's happened to many here. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near, been brought near by the blood 
of Christ, whom to know is life eternal. No hope is replaced with eternal certainty. It is either the absence of God or the presence of God that characterizes every single one of us here this morning. And I don't know it. I can talk to you and make up my mind, perhaps. But God knows whether he's present or whether he's absent. On Wednesday, Peter very helpfully reminded us of that lady with the issue of blood and, and how she pressed through the crowd. She pressed through the crowd to get to Jesus, just to touch him. She pressed through to be in his presence because his presence to know him, even just to touch him, just to reach him, changes everything. And this morning, maybe that's what you need to do. You need to get up, not out of your seat, but in your heart, in your mind, and press through everything else, the crowd of everything else that's in your way. And it's been in your way for years. But you need to press through. Just reach out and come to the Lord Jesus and be saved. And he says to you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Well, in Exodus 33, we've have, we have what we said so many times before, a physical picture of the spiritual journey that Christians are on. And, and in these two chapters, there are numerous insights and helps, numerous challenges and encouragements for us about this whole subject of the presence of God, the presence of God with individuals, Moses particularly, and the presence of God with his people. Now we need to just, before we launch in, we need to define what we mean. So you, you see this subject, the presence of God. What do we mean by that? What do we mean when we think about it in this context, in this passage, and in the context of the scriptures? Well, we are not going to be talking here about that which we call the omnipresence of God. So God is omnipotent. Omni means all, all, everything. So God, his potency, his power, is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. Science, we get from that word, knowledge. He knows everything. He knows all. And God is omnipresent. Well, he's present all the time, everywhere, at every occasion. There's nowhere where he's not present. At the beginning of the service, we read something of Psalm 139, where David just reflects on that and he says, well, whether I go east or west, you're there. Whether I go high or low, you're there. Wherever I go, I can't run away from your presence. He didn't want to, but he reflected on the fact that wherever he was, God was there. He is teaching us about the omnipresence of God. And if you want one amazing verse about this, Jeremiah 23 and two verses, 23 and 24. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? 
Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? So God poses the question to us. So am I a God near at hand? Or am I a God far away? What am I then? University challenge. What am I? Am I God far away or am I a God near? Can anybody hide from me? Well, David says he can't. Why? It is because God says of himself, I fill the heavens and the earth. And a wonderful line in one of those hymns, he embraces eternity. God can hold eternity. He embraces it all. Not just time, not just place, but eternity. That is the omnipresence of God. And that is a doctrine and a truth which the scripture teaches, which is wonderful. It's a mighty, wonderful and glorious truth. But what we have before us in this passage and in this subject is what we've said in verse 4, 14, my presence. And in verse 15, your presence. So what does that mean? Because God is everywhere. Well, when we look up the word, and uh, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but uh, when you look up the word for presence, we find it's exactly the same word for face. It's the same word for face. Same word used in the Hebrew. We use for different things. But it's the same word. So in Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, in the beginning God made the heaven and the earth, it tells us that the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. So a face is a surface. You can say that, can't we? Like a, a coin has got two sides, two faces to it. The surface. But it can also mean something more animate than that. That's an inanimate object. But if you have a look at chapter 34, where we're going to read and go in a few weeks' time in verses 29 and 30, uh, you'll see there that uh, it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the two tablets in his hand, uh, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. It's the same word. It's the word face. It gives us a help to understand what it means. Our key words, my presence, your presence. What does it mean? It helps us when we think of it in terms of a face. When I was 17, I fell in love with somebody called Anne. I wanted to be with her all the time. I wanted to be in her presence. Her presence. Just to be around her, to be with her, to be walking with her, to be talking with her, is what I wanted more than anything else. To be in her presence. I got the A-levels, but I didn't go to university. I went off to work. And uh, at work, when I first started, I was sent away to the headquarters of the company in Scotland. 
for an extended induction to the company. What did I miss whilst I was away? I missed her presence. Do you know what she sent me when I was away? She sent me her face. They're not very glamorous. You can look at them afterwards and see if she's aged in the last 50 years. She hasn't really much. She took one with her glasses on and one with her glasses off. In one of those little booths where you get your passport photos taken. Black and white. Young people, black and white. She sent me her face. Do you see what what it meant to me? It was her presence. And you see that the Hebrew word for face and presence, though they don't seem to be connected, in fact are connected very, very wonderfully. Because that face in that letter, when I opened it, was the intimacy and the reality of somebody I loved and somebody I wanted to be in her presence. So did you notice when Roger was reading in chapter 33 of Exodus and verse 11 that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face? Guess what those words are in the original? Exactly the same words as verse 14 and verse 15. Presence, my presence, your presence. He spoke to God presence to presence, face to face. So so intimate, so, so real, so personal was that relationship. So here's our definition. We know that theologically, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, in every place, at all times. Omnipresent. But we know from this passage, and we know from the scriptures, that the presence of God is the intimate reality that the Christian has on their journey to heaven. Here is this physical picture of the journey of the children of Israel to the promised land. And it is pointing us to and introducing us to that which we will see more and more as we turn the pages of Scripture right to the very end of Scripture. Because at the end of Scripture in heaven, in Revelation 22, we are told there The people of God see him, guess what? Face to face. But on this journey that you and I are on, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, if you know that heaven is that final destination, though at this time, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, you'll see him through a glass darkly. You won't be able to see him like we'll see him in heaven but you will be able to see him like Moses and the people saw him, face to face, presence to presence. That is why Roger Ellsworth says in his commentary, as we've written down on the sheet there, this is the most wonderful thing. This is the most glorious thing. To know God. When Austin stood here a few weeks ago on that Sunday afternoon, speaking about that, blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, 
the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one thing I can remember him saying was this, I know God. I know God. Do you know God? Not just about God, but do you know God? Because this passage is about knowing God. It is about knowing his presence. It is knowing the intimate reality of what it is to be a Christian and to know my face and his face, as it were, my presence and his presence together on this journey until that day when we shall see him face to face and all the veils will be taken away. Now we're going to explore what that means. We're going to explore it here in chapter 33. We're going to explore it as we go into chapter 34 because it's very much the core of what is happening here, what we're being taught here. Now the first lesson that we learned, three lessons this morning, the first lesson that we learn is this. It's a sad thing. It begins in a sad way. It doesn't begin in a wonderful, glorious way. It begins in a sad way. But when we begin like this, we realize how wonderful this truth is. Because the first thing is this. We discover the withdrawn presence of God. The withdrawn presence of God. We all know, don't we, if we've been here for any number of weeks, we know what chapter 32 is all about. If anybody stopped you in the street and said, what's Exodus 32 all about? If you don't say idolatry, well, you've not been listening. It's about idolatry, isn't it? It's the idolatry which, which just overwhelmed the people at that time. And it brought them into a position which caused God to withdraw himself. And so in verse, 30, uh, verse 35, verse 35, the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. There was ongoing ripple of their idolatry going on. And it ripples out into chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people who he brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send my angel before you. We know who that is, don't we? The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ before them. I will drive out all these different ites in verse 2. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then look at what it says next. For I will not go up in your midst. Our first lesson is this, the withdrawn presence of God. God says, go on. Go on with the journey now. And things are quite positively stated, aren't there, about the future. I'm with you, he says, in the sense of sending my angel before you, in the sense of preparing the battleground to drive out all the ites that are going to be in, in front of you in the promised land, things for the final arrival into the promised land, but all's not well with the relationship with God. Because he says, I will not go with you. And what should be the most wonderful thing on the journey has now become the saddest thing. And it's Ellsworth's tragedy that God has said, you go up, but I won't be in your midst. My presence will be missing. 
Now, if you've got an authorized version in verse 14, it says this is evil tidings. It's a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? If you've got a new King James, it says this is bad news. If you've got an NIV, it says these are distressing words. And if you've got an ESV, it says these are disastrous words. These are disastrous words. There's nothing more tragic, nothing more sad than the absence of God with his people, individually and corporately as a church. His omnipresence has not changed. It cannot. But his face-to-face presence is withdrawn. So what we learn from this is that you can be a Christian here this morning and you can be journeying on and you can think, well, I I seem to be making some progress and I know I'm going to heaven. I know that promised land is before me and I know that God is omnipresent in all things and in every place. But God is missing. So that when I pray, I don't feel he's with me. When I read, he's distant. When I seem to witness, it's wooden. I don't feel him with me. And journeying can go on. But it's hard going. It's dry. It's drudgery. And it becomes routine. So my question of myself this morning and of every one of us is what is it like on the journey with you this morning? Can you honestly say, Lord, your presence is such a blessing? Or is it in your heart this morning, Lord, your absence is so troubling? What causes it? Well, chapter 32 causes it, didn't it? It's idolatry. Other gods before me. They become stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. A number of times that phrase comes, doesn't it? Stiff-necked. Have you seen a stiff-necked person? Very proud. Oh, yes. It's like that. That's the picture. A stiff-necked person. You see, we're not to be stiff-necked. We are to be people who are humbled and bowed down and aware of our sinfulness and aware of God's goodness and amazed that he's brought us out of slavery, that he's provided for us every day, that though we're in a wilderness, yet we're still alive. He's giving us his commandments. He's given us his very heart. He's told us about himself. He's told us about his identity. He's given us an identity. We are on our way to a promised land. We have the angel of God, the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus in this form, invisible, going with us. We have that promise for the future. But we become stiff-necked and unthankful. 
grateful and ungrateful and gratitude is missing and humility is gone and idolatry has come in and there are so many things clouding our vision of God then his presence has gone. And can you see what they did in verse 4? They mourned. They mourned. You know what they did? They looked at one another and they said, this is ridiculous. What are you wearing? What am I wearing? I'm still wearing all the things, all the trappings of Egypt. I'm wearing all the ornaments and all the, all the stuff the Egyptians wore. They didn't have these things. They were slaves. They were given them. But in a proud way, they went, look at us. You know, we got out of Egypt and all the trappings we've got here of it. A lot of it had gone, hadn't it, to make the golden calf. What a folly that was. Yet still, the outward picture is of a heart which is not right with God. So God's presence has been withdrawn. As a hymn we might sing this next time, Thomas Pollock, We have not loved you as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by you. Your presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed your face to view. Lord, to us the grace impart to love our God with all our heart. You see Pollock there, he understood the connection between presence and face. Your presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed your face to know. It can happen to us personally. It can happen to a church. It happened to that church, didn't it, in Revelation. I've got something against you, says the Lord Jesus, that you've lost your first love. There's lots, he says, about the church that's going on, and a lot can go on in our hearts, and on the outside it can look good, and the church can look great, but the love is to be with all our hearts. And when it's not, an idolatry has caused him to withdraw his presence from us. It is the saddest and the most tragic thing. Now, that's our start point. That's our start point. And you think, well, it's been pretty difficult going, hasn't it, through chapter 32? Is there no light? Is there no hope yet? And yes, there is. There is. Will God's presence be their experience again? Look down at the passage. And think of yourself going through a dark tunnel. I don't know whether you've ever done that. I'm trying to think of an example where we've done that, where you go through a dark tunnel. We used to go with uh, Uncle Richard, so Anne's brother, used to go as a family to a place called Sorby Tunnel down in Devon. It's closed now. It was uh, like a, a farm where they'd got some uh, things for children and the playground and everything else. But there was the old railway line. And on the farm was the tunnel. Wow. All the things that you did were quite amazing, but it was the tunnel you wanted to go down. Because you went into this tunnel, and it was dripping, wet, and when you looked back, you could see some light. But the more you went down this tunnel, the further and further you went, the darker and darker and darker it got. And there was just that point, there was just that point about halfway through, where in this tiny bend there is in the tunnel, 
you could see just a glimmer of light at the end. It's like that in this passage. Can you see the glimmer of light? Can you see the words in verse 12 and verse 13? What's the word that comes again and again? Grace. 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 Lord, if I have found grace in your sight. Lord, if your people have found grace in your sight. Lord, you're a God of grace. Grace is undeserved favor and love and kindness. Then what happens in verse 14? It's almost as if they come round the corner and there they see the sunshine streaming down at the end of the tunnel. My presence will go with you. Moses prays, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, then we're not going anywhere. We're waiting here until it does. That's what we long for more than anything else. Lord, by your grace, will you deal with us as your people? Will you show us light? Brings us to our second point. Our second point is the sought-after presence. So the first point, verses 1 to 6, is the withdrawn presence of God. Verses 7 to 11, we read them earlier, a sought-after presence, a sought-after presence. So after those weeks away in Scotland, who do you think was on the station to meet me when I got home? Now, had I called off? Had I forgotten she might be there? Was I still reading my magazine when we came into the station platform? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Not at all. Not at all. Those letters, those pictures, that that anticipating and longing for the reality that the words told me and the face reminded me of was so very precious. To be again in her presence. We thank God after 50 years nearly, we're still in the presence of one another. But that's a different story. What we, what we see here is, what happens? Can you see in verse 7 and verse 8? Can you see that you can almost see it? You can almost touch it, can't you? The longed-for presence of God. Moses took his tent. Now, this is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle instructions have been given to Moses there in the previous chapters. We will look at them later when the tabernacle is built. But this is not the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies and all that sort of thing. No, this is Moses taking a tent, his tent, and going outside the camp. And from the context, it appears that what he did was he went partially up the mountain, because everybody can see him. And this was a vast, vast valley, Mount Horeb up here, where the Ten Commandments were given. But somehow Moses has pitched his tent where everyone can see. Remember, there are thousands upon thousands of these people. So there is a clear view of Moses and his tent. And can you see what happens in verse 7? He takes his tent, he pitches it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting 
Interesting, that's what the name will be of the tabernacle. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And we find from verse 9 to verse 11, Moses, as it were, is modeling what it is to be in the presence of God. To be in the presence of God. And the people can see it. The people can watch him. Each day when he goes, how often he went, we don't know. But when he went, the, 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 the word went round the camp. Moses is going. He's going now. And people would stand, stand in the doorway of their tents. And they would watch this tiny figure in the distance. And they would watch him go up into this area where his tent was. And they would watch him meet. And there were those who sought after God. There were those who said, I want this too. I do not want to be on this journey any longer without the presence of God, without the assurance that God is with me. And there were those who went up with him. We know that Joshua, for example, went up with him. But everyone else, they stood in the doorway of their tents. And what do they do? Verse 10, they worship. The stiff necks are bowed down. The hard hearts are softened. The eyes that looked on all the stuff from Egypt looked on the God who was present with Moses. That cloud came down. The evidence of God. So the angel is the Lord Jesus Christ in theophany form. But throughout this whole journey thus far, we've seen, how many right from the beginning, the pillar of cloud and fire, the same pillar, whether it was at night or at day, was the evidence of God. And there comes the evidence of God down where Moses is. And men and women, boys and girls, looked towards that. And they longed for that intimate presence of God. Is that what you long for? Is that what I look to? Am I content with just getting up every morning in the drudgery of my Christian life without the evidence and the presence of God with me so that it's dry and dusty and though I think perhaps I'm making some progress, there's no joy, there's no life, there's no God. He's still withdrawn. And I long for him. It's just an aside here to those of you who are young men particularly. Do you notice in verse 11? Joshua. Now a long time ago in this church, we did a little series, a little card. And it's called Joshua before Joshua. There's a lot we learn about Joshua before we get to the book of Joshua. If you did want to do a little exercise sometime, you read about Joshua. Look him up in a concordance or on your Google him or whatever and find the references and find what happens to Joshua. Joshua is getting nearer and nearer and nearer to leadership as he gets nearer and nearer and nearer to God. That Joshua, as a young man, is being prepared for leadership 
in the presence of men who knew God, Moses in particular. And if you're a young man and you long for knowing what God will have for you in your life, how you will lead and serve God, then make sure you're a Joshua. Joshua went out of the camp and he made sure he was with those who loved God and worshipped him. Do you notice the people? They rose up to worship. Do you remember what they did in chapter 32? They rose up to play. See, chapter 32 is all about play. It's all about dancing around an idol. It's all about wasting our time and our talents and our abilities. Wasting our resources to build a golden calf. Chapter 33 is all about rising up to worship God and to put him first. It's not just for the stuff of the few. We're not saying there's haves and have-nots. What is the longing of Moses here? Well, we'll see it. It's a longing that all the people might understand the wonder of the presence of God. So here's our third point. A promised presence. A promised presence. We'll finish with this and pick it up next time. Verses 12 to 17. Here is Moses. And what is he doing in verses 12 to 17? We read it. Roger read it for us. Then Moses said to the Lord, See you, say to the... Uh, say to me, bring up this people, but you have not said who you will uh, send with me. I, I, I need to know, Lord, that, that these people are with me. Uh, show me your grace. Please, Lord, I plead for these people. Moses' love for his people is tremendous, isn't it? In the previous chapter, we said he was ready to blot himself out. He said, Lord, blot me out if you'll save the people. That is wonderful, isn't it? It's a picture of the Lord Jesus who was blotted out for us. But his intercession is most wonderful. Can you see how he changes his intercession from the me and the I to this, your nation, your people, and to us? If you go away and read it, you follow the, follow the track of his plea, his intercession. His intercession is not, I want this. I want this for me. No, no, no. His intercession is for the people. He longs for the people to know this. Here is a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? The equivalent passage, perhaps, is John 17. Very often in the Old Testament, you'll have a passage, and you'll be able to turn to a New Testament passage and say, you know, that is really the fulfillment of that. Here is the Lord Jesus praying in John 17 for his disciples. And he prays that they may know you. And Jesus Christ, who you sent. Well, that's, of course they, they knew him. What, what does Jesus mean? They, they knew him. Somebody asked them in the marketplace, did you know Jesus? He said, of course I knew him. No, it's more than that, isn't it? It is more than that. That they may know you. That they may know you face to face. Presence to presence. It was the Lord Jesus' great prayer for his disciples that present, real communion with God. And we know how that prayer goes on, don't we? 
how that prayer expands. Just like Moses' prayer expands, not only praying for his disciples, but praying for all those who will come to know you through their word, all those spilling down through history. Christian believers, you and me here at Castlefields Church, very often, this is not our priority because idolatry is our priority. But always, it is the priority of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Follow it through Scripture. Sometimes, he has to withdraw his presence. But why? So that they might once again seek after his presence and know his promise of his presence. We won't look at it, but in Exodus 29, there's a definition of what the tabernacle is going to be. We're going to see it built in forthcoming times in chapters after this. But essentially what it is, it's exactly what happened here. It's a meeting place where God comes to meet his people. Well, we don't have a tabernacle today, do we? Well, in a sense we do. Because the equivalent passage is in Hebrews, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 10. We enter the holiest by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our tabernacle. We go to him. We don't have to look to a man going out on a hillside somewhere. We look to the God-man who was crucified on the hill of Calvary. And there we find his presence promised to us. Well, it's the great wonder to know the presence of God, to know in your quiet time, to know in church, to know when you're witnessing, to know when we're, when we're out and about, to know that God is with you. To know God is an amazing thing. And the absence of God is a sadness and a tragedy. May we all be as Christians, those who know God as Moses knew him, face to face, presence to presence. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for these wonderful pictures of the Old Testament that, that point us to the Lord Jesus so wonderfully. And we thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus' prayer that they might know you and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Lord, may we from this time forward know you more. And if we feel, Lord, a dryness and an emptiness and an absence, may we seek after you, Lord, to know you, to know you so that we might shine for you uh, in these days. We, we think forwards to Moses with his face shining because he'd been with God. Lord, as we come to that passage later on, we pray that we might find the very presence of one another a blessing as we know that we have been in the presence of God. So we ask these things and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our fourth hymn is an old hymn by Augustus Toplady. Um, object of my first desire. Jesus crucified for me. Lord, if your presence if you your presence give, then it is not death to die. What a wonderful thought.
Let's sing this hymn together. presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore lord may these things be a reality to us not just stuck in an old book but a reality in our hearts we pray and we know that it'll be a reality in heaven and may we know a touch of heaven here upon earth we pray in these dark days and difficult days may we truly live for you we pray May you be present with us, not absent from us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.